As we study in the book of Acts, we find two stories in chapter 9 and chapter 10 back to back that illustrate a very important part in understanding life change as it happens in our hearts and in our lives and the way we live when we come to that point where we trust Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus, and we now call ourselves a variety of names that Christians refer to themselves, one being Christian or disciple or follower or believer. We have this new relationship with Christ, and everything dramatically changes. But an easy mistake to make is to assume that now that this change has happened because I've met Jesus, that it's kind of a a one-time decision that concludes everything going forward. And it doesn't doesn't work that way. So you you go to chapter 9, and we looked at that last week, and we have that, that amazing story of the apostle Paul, who was a Hebrew zealot named Saul, Total, complete, radical life change went from persecuting the church to becoming and will become one of the staunchest defenders of the church as he meets Jesus. And it's easy to think, this is it. Everything's good. It's going to be perfect from this point on. I fell into that trap when I became a believer, when I made that decision to trust Christ, to become a Christian. I fell into that trap. I said, I've met Jesus. I was so excited. Things were already changing. Things happened very fast, and things were changing very rapidly. And I started studying the Bible, and I was in a small group that was helping me. I had older men in my life that began to mentor me. And everything was going so good so fast. And it's like, this is it. I made this decision and everything's different. But what I failed to recognize in that moment is that the maturity, the spiritual growth that happens and all that God wants to accomplish in our life actually keeps rolling, keeps happening. And so, yes, there's this one moment when you trust in Jesus and everything changes, life change happens, But the entire process of the maturing that God wants to do continues to take place. So I can look at this moment in which everything changed, but there have been additional moments since then, additional time, and it continues. As long as I'm alive, as long as I'm here on earth, that continues. And there are things that need to be dealt with. There are things I need to understand. There are things that God wants to do in my life. And so you have Paul's moment in chapter 9, In chapter 10, we have Peter's moment. Peter is an established believer. Peter literally was beside Jesus when he was on earth. Peter literally sat at his feet, listened to him teach. Peter could be considered one of Jesus' best friends while Jesus was on earth. Peter had this amazing relationship with Jesus. He made mistakes. But some of the greatest example of God's love and redemption and forgiveness is because Peter's mistakes led to a reconciliation with Jesus that is just unbelievably sweet and tender as God continues to work in him. Peter was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's released. Peter, Peter is a part of the founding of the early church. Those first 12 chapters that we studied last fall of the founding, the establishment of the new church. Peter was there. But now the church is expanding. The church is changing. 
The church is on a plan that is orchestrated and guided by God, not by the leaders of the church and not by the people of the church, but by God's divine hand. And everything is going to be different once again. There's a, another course correction in place. And Peter's going to have to experience life change again. Not because Peter in some way failed, not because Peter in some way was a remedial student, but because it is the nature of our relationship with God that as life rolls on, as life continues, we experience new things and God is doing new things in us and we need his grace and his work in those new experiences. So that's what all of chapter 10 is about. We're going to look at the first half of that story today. It's Peter's recognition that one more time, not the last time, but one more time in this moment, his heart needs to change again. He needs a course correction. Let me, let me read the story to us for just a second so we pick up all of the context, and then I want to go back and look at some specific moments and movements in this story. It starts in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Guys, you need to circle this verse. It is biblical evidence that hunting is a godly reflection of your spirituality. God said, get up. I, this is one time when I like the King James Version. Arise, kill, and eat. Just in honor of the end of black powder season today and hunting's over for the most part for another whole year. Let's just have a moment of silence. No, Lord. Verse 14, in case you got distracted there for just a moment. Verse 14, no, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made, do not call impure. 
This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you are looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his household to hear a message from you. Verse 23, which is kind of a pivotal point for us, and where this story ends this week, and we'll pick it up later. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. Now, on the surface, it seems like a relatively simple story. You have a man who is a military officer who has been praying and has been seeking God and has a relationship with him and is directed by God in a very dramatic, supernatural moment to go and find Peter because Peter will help him take the next steps in his faith. Seems simple enough. Peter has this vision, and in the vision, God directs him to be hospitable to this man. And this is where it may get a little confusing for some of us, because it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But what you have in Acts chapter 10 is a huge deal. Two things exist in Acts chapter 10. The first thing is religion and faith and worship is about to change. And it is about to change in an appropriately inclusive fashion. And that's key, appropriately inclusive. Because worship up until now has been exclusive. And it has been an experience that has bred the second issue in Acts chapter 10, which is religious prejudice, which is tied very closely to ethnic prejudice. And so Peter is going to struggle with this because the way Peter understands that worship is supposed to take place is about to change. And who is allowed to worship is about to change. And the pollution from his religious background is about to be confronted because under all other circumstances, Peter never, ever would have allowed a centurion from Caesarea to come and request his presence. He would not even have spoken to them. Peter was raised and taught to hate Gentiles as an ethnic group. They are worthless they are considered, and Peter heard his dad say this over and over and over again, son, they're no good for anything other than fuel for the fires of hell. Don't have anything to do with them. Literally hate them. 
And Peter has done that faithfully, religiously, tying his faith and his spirituality into that prejudice, which was nothing more than an ethnic hatred and prejudice based on perceived and misunderstood understandings of his faith and of his religion. And so never under any circumstance would Peter have acknowledged, and he definitely would never have invited in a Gentile soldier. Because that's the other complicating factor here. Not only did he hate religiously all Gentiles, all non-Jews, but he had also grown up in an occupied territory with Rome as the occupying force. And Caesarea is a port that was created by Rome as a resort area for the leadership and the executives and, and, and the, the political power holders in Rome. And so Caesarea, for the most part, was a city that was designed for all the pagan and inappropriate, inappropriate behavior that characterized Rome as an occupying force. And so Peter not only religiously hated Gentiles, but Peter also, from a standpoint of occupation and military occupation, hated Rome. This is the conflict the disciples got in all the time. This is what caused Judas to betray Jesus. Do something about Rome. Their understanding of their true need was so short-sighted, that's all they could think of. The Messiah surely is going to get us out from underneath this oppression. The Messiah is surely going to put Rome in its place. The Messiah, surely God's going to move in our political circumstances. Peter's huge surprise in chapter 10 is that God moves in Peter's heart. Because it's clear, it's difficult for us as scholars to look back on historical moments. It's difficult for us to completely understand because it's clear. I, I could spend the rest of the afternoon leading you through verse after verse after verse in the Old Testament that demonstrates that Israel's calling always was to all people. That God chose Israel, God honored Israel, and God challenged Israel to be his light to all nations. I love the prophecy of Isaiah from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, from every direction of the compass on the given world. Israel was to be a light and God was going to gather all of his creation into his presence. But over the years, worship had become construed and had become this thing that accented who we think we are instead of who we should be. And Acts chapter 10 is a beautiful picture because we begin to see the, the issues of heart definition, the, the, the defining of our hearts, and we begin to recognize not everything is as it seems. Because here's a man that Peter has been taught to distaste and despise. But who is this man? Yes, his name is Cornelius. Yes, that's a Roman name. Yes, that's a Greek name. That matches up with the ethnicity issues. 
Yes, he is a soldier in the occupying army. Oh, but guess what? With all those strikes against him, it turns out, and Luke is careful to give us this information, that he was a devout man, which means he was a deeply spiritual man. He feared God. He respected God. He reverenced God. He had a relationship with God, and he loved God, and he wanted to do all he possibly could to be a godly man. And not only was he capable of doing that individually, but in verse 2, we see that he, he led his entire household, which means not only his wife, his children, possibly his grandchildren, depending on his age, but all of those who worked for him and all of those who served him and all of those who were in the ranks underneath him knew his spiritual nature. He did numerous, many charitable little deeds. As an occupying officer, he sought the best for the people that he was responsible for. And it says, even all of the Jewish people recognized this and knew that he was a generous man. And that he has, and bound in verse 22, when you pick up the words that are there as he's described by his workers and by his servants, that he has a good reputation with all the Jewish nation. He was a godly man who loves the people he interacts with, who is generous with the people he interacts with probably to the point of sacrifice. And here's a man who always prayed to God. And because of that devout spiritual nature, here is a man now who has been directed by God to have a conversation with Peter. Not everything is as it seems. Sometimes we become so convinced that a situation is as we evaluate it, as we see it, as we respond to it, only to find out we were completely wrong. And I, I probably don't need illustrations. You can probably think of any number of moments. Oh, that church. Oh, that music. Oh, that style. Oh, the, oh that, oh, that, oh, that. And it may be one of the very moments in which God is moving in a unique way. I have been at this for a while and I am a leader not only of our church, but of pastors. And I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in prayer meetings, particularly with other pastors, praying for God to bring a revival. But I have the unfortunate background of having deeply studied spiritual awakenings and having taught church history and specifically Baptist history at a graduate level. And I know that as much as everybody gets excited about spiritual awakening and everybody gets all wound up and we start dancing and praying and God, please bring a revival. What I know historically is that the vast majority of the existing church will hate revival. They will fight against it, they will complain about it, and they will do everything in their power to squelch it. Because you find out in revival that not everything is the way it seems. And you find out that the way maybe we were categorizing, judging, and determining what is spiritual may not have been accurate. So we need a change. And here's the hope. Here's, here's the promise. Beginning in verse 10, we find Peter, who is going to struggle with all these things, in a moment where he decides to be sensitive to God. He acknowledges his past 
God gives him the vision. God instructs him to do something that no righteous Jew would ever do. And Peter's response is that, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure. I've never eaten anything ritually unclean. I never went to church in blue jeans. I never sung those songs. I don't listen to that soft-pedaled, repeating music. No, Lord, I've never done that. No, Lord, I've never. No. How many times do we tell God, never, never, no? It was good intentions. It was a good heart. But Peter's about to find out that hearts change and that everything doesn't stay as it was. And the voice corrects him and says, what God has made clean, do not call impure. If we're waiting for revival, if we're waiting for awakening, let me tell you one of the main issues we're going to have to deal with in our hearts is whether or not we're capable of saying, that's a movement of God. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I may not even enjoy it. But if it's a movement of God, I want to be a part of it. We're going to have to put aside our prejudices, whether they're ethnic or whether they're religious. We may have to open our hearts because that's what happens. We don't define our hearts by just the past. We define our hearts by what God is doing in this moment and where God wants us to go. And if our heart needs to change, then there needs to be an openness in us to be willing to change. And as confronted, Peter becomes an excellent example of that change. And this is the heartwarming part. You have the confrontation. You have the, the, the undeniably difficult set of circumstances that Peter is dealing with, but we have this beautiful picture of everything as God wants it to be, everything as it should be. The Spirit tells him, whether he's literally audibly hearing it or he just senses it in his heart, we who know Jesus have had experiences like this where we just know we need to do something. The Spirit tells him, there are three men looking for you. I want you to get up. I want you to go downstairs, and I want you to go with them. I want you to leave Joppa, go to Caesarea, a place that you hate. I want you to leave where you're at, which actually is an unclean place anyway. A good Jew would never spend the night in a tanner's house because they never touched anything that was dead um, or decaying. And in case you're not sure what a tanner's house is, Simon the tanner is basically a taxidermist. But we'll not get distracted again. Peter wouldn't do that. Peter's already shifting. Peter's already changing. I want you to go down with them. And I love this phrase. Go downstairs and go with them with no doubts at all. Because I have sent them. Because I have sent them. And then in verse 23, and I said earlier, this is kind of the pivotal point. This is kind of that, that moment when everything changes. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. Everything can be as it should be. Peter, in his heart change, welcomes all that God wants. Now, I've tried today to be real careful because I recognize that we all have biases. 
We all have prejudices. And we all have things that might be ethnic in nature or it might be religious in nature that we assume this is what's absolutely right. But maybe in this moment, in this time, and in this place, God wants to do something in our hearts to see something new, to see someone different, to see them how God sees them. And he sees them through eyes of love. And that is such a huge blessing. As God gathers his people and works in his people so that his people can do the same thing that the Jewish nation was supposed to do and do the same thing that is a part of our Old Testament understanding of our faith as well as our New Testament understanding of our faith, and that is help people meet Jesus. And it doesn't matter what they look like, where they're from, who they are. God loves them. I was excited last week. I mentioned my friends from Cuba, and I want to ask you to pray for, pray for Miguel and pray for Yannette. While they were in church last week, they got the message that their son, 35-year-old son, had died in the hospital. Cuba is a communist country. They did not have thread. They did not have suture material in stock, and they left an injury to his knee open. He became infected and septic, and he died. He leaves behind a six-year-old girl, and Miguel and Yannette are in the process of trying to figure out how to get their six-year-old granddaughter now here to the United States. But I recognized them last week and mentioned them in our, in our conversation, and I do it again today. And I ask you just, even as we close out the service, say a prayer for them. This is a very difficult time for them. They've only been in the United States four months What I didn't mention was, as I looked across the front rows of our church last week, we have an Australian with us. The folks from down under came here. As difficult as it may be to understand a Cuban immigrant and an Australian immigrant, Don is from Washington State. We had Mexico sitting here last week. We had Turkey sitting here last week. And I met brand new friends who sat in the back last week from Africa. This isn't a community that is over 80% Anglo. Is God doing a new thing? I don't know, but I want to be open to it. What's God doing in this moment? that we need to question the definition of what our heart has been and stop and say, you know what, not everything's as it seems. And how do we need to redefine our heart so that it's like Jesus' heart? That we would seek and invite and welcome in and lodge those who just simply don't look like us, talk like us, act like us. What, what is there 
that needs to change? And what should it be? What should the church be?